Once again, good morning. We're glad that you're here. Uh, those of you who are back in town after being gone for the uh, Christmas break, uh, it's great to have you back. And by the way, we launch this week. I thought I would start with uh, a bit of, I guess, Auburn family news, and it's also our church family news, uh, if you didn't already know. Um, Tommy Turberville is now the uh, officially the head coach of Texas Tech, and um, which, of course, means that they will be uh, moving away from us and we will miss them. And, uh, but I'm you know, happy for him and for his family. <clears throat> the picture that you're looking at, uh, I give credit to my daughter, Anna. She's reading a book by Henry Nguyen entitled... Uh, the Return of the Prodigal Son, which is, by the way, the, the name of this picture, which was done by Rembrandt uh, back in the mid-1600s. And um, it's going to be somewhat, I guess, a signature graphic as we go through uh, the things I want to share with you this morning. I will not really refer to the story, per se, out of Luke 15. Mike already did. Uh, but I hope you'll see that really where James is taking us is basically a commentary on that story. The title of this song, uh, some of you will be familiar with, uh, it is uh, from uh, the group uh, Third Day, and is entitled, as you see, Call My Name, and rather than beginning as I typically do with a laugh, I'd like to start with some lyrics. In part, it reads this way, it has been so long since you felt like you were loved So what went wrong? But do you know there's a place where you belong? Here in my arms. When you feel like you're all alone in your sadness and it feels like no one else in the whole world cares. And you you want to get away from the madness. You just call my name. And I'll be there. Basically, it's an appeal by God. And I want you to to hear today this appeal that God is making to everyone here in this room and how when you're away from God, you're missing out on so much. And how just ready and, and, and resolute and eager God is to love us and to embrace us and to forgive us. And so I hope that you will see the vision of the picture and that you will allow these words to kind of, uh, underneath it all, filter through the things that we're going to hear from James. And it is a powerful, powerful text. Now, if you're familiar with this text, I want you to understand that there's more here than simply what I think we kind of go up in church thinking this is kind of a harsh, demanding call to get on with it, get your life straight. But you've not understood this text if that's what you read. And so I hope that you'll see this through different eyes. He says this. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Come near to God. And he will come near to you. Wash your hands. All of us sinners. And purify your hearts. All of us who are vacillating, trying to figure out if God's worth trusting or not. Grieve, mourn, wail. 
Turn your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, remember the context of these verses. The last time James asked us uh, this question, what's causing all these fights among you? We talked about murder in the cathedral. Do you remember? And his answer was that the reason we fight each other is because we're at war within ourselves. And the reason that we're at war within ourselves is because there's a part of us deep inside that's still at war with God. But as James shows us here, there's a way out of this madness. And that way out, James tells us, is basically to open ourselves up to the grace of God. He said, and God gives us more grace. And who does God give his grace to? To those who basically raise their hands and says, I give up. I can't do this on my own. And so you see the quest for peace begins with surrender. And so what James goes on to reveal to us here are the terms of surrender. And you'll notice he opens with, with ten imperatives. Ten kind of cumulative responses that paint this picture. If we're going to call on his name and we're going to find our way home. Which, after all, is what God longs for from us. You know, it was said about my generation, we were called the boomer generation, born between 46, 64, technically, that in the religious context at church, we sought anonymity. We wanted to be anonymous. It says about the generation is now, you know, uh, in college, that this generation seeks deep connection. And by the way, we ought to pay attention to that. But there's kind of an irony here to me as well. Do you see it? That this generation, while it longs for a deep connection, yet often settles for very shallow ways of relating? I've got 500 friends on Facebook! But James offers us something much more substantial. And he begins with a word, submit. Now, technically, this is a military term. And it means how we are to get within our proper rank. Turn you on yet? Well, hold on. Now, those of you who serve in the military get this. You know how essential it is for everyone to understand their place, if you will, in the chain of command. So what James is telling us here is that the reason that there's so much relational tension is because we've left our rank. And so we've kind of gotten, we have to get back, if you will, into position with God where we belong. It's kind of like having a car where it's out of line. Now, if you understand the idea, your tires aren't going the direction you're supposed to go. They don't synchronize with your steering wheel. No matter how hard you try, the car is going to keep trying to pull off either left or the right. And the only way to solve that problem is to get your tires realigned. And if you don't, not only will the car continue to be hard to handle, you can't multitask with having a phone in one hand and trying to drink something in the other, is that the treads on your tire will wear out much more rapidly and very unevenly and it will cost you a lot more a lot quicker. Now maybe the reason that some of us are losing so much tread in life, think about this. You're worn out and you're angry all the time. You're constantly struggling, trying to figure out why your life isn't 
going the direction you really want it to go. And you're feeling like maybe in the back of your mind that God's a little bit distant. It's because we're out of alignment. In other words, we need to come back to the place that God designed for us. Friendship with God grows out of submission. In other words, on the top of your outlines, if you have them, if you'd like to fill them in, friendship with God grows out of making ourselves available to God. And so what does this mean? What is it going to take for us to make ourselves available to God? And that's where James takes us. Very simply, first of all, on your outlines, we must battle Satan. James says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, when I hear texts like this, my mind tends to conjure up the images of, from the classic book by C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. Anyone read that book? All right, quite a few. Good. If you haven't, it's basically about a seasoned demon named Screwtape who carries on a series of, of written communications with his nephew, Wormwood, as, they, as he tries to mentor him on how to destroy people's attempts to get to God. And although at first it might seem a bit cartoonish, when you begin to read the communications between these two demons, you begin to realize that it's anything but cartoonish and trifling. It's like the lyrics penned by Martin Luther in the song, A Mighty Fortress. David referred to it when he said, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Now, I know the, 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 the language is a bit archaic, but you understand where he's going with this, don't you? I mean, call it what you will. You only have to look honestly in the mirror at the mess in your life, at the skeletons in your closet. The, the, the hidden personal shame that tends to just keep rearing its head. The family secrets. To realize that we're all locked, locked in some kind of mortal battle with a very superior enemy. Heard about a situation recently and did some reading on it. About some Montana ranchers who were having problems with coyotes eating their sheep. And it was costing them an enormous amount of money. And they tried all their defense mechanisms, and they tried you know, electric fences and odor sprays and other things, and nothing seemed to work. But there was one woman who uh, came across some research about llamas. And how that when they see something strange or threatening, rather than running away from them, they rear their heads up and they walk right at the threat. And so she bought some llamas and put them out as guards for her sheep. And these coyotes would see, be seen or spotted by these llamas. The llamas would raise their head, walk right at them, and these poor old coyotes couldn't handle it. They would just run away.
Well, James is telling us here that we're not supposed to run away from Satan, but we're, he says we're supposed to make Satan run away from us. And I'm trying to jive that with the fact that I'm dealing here with a superior enemy. You've got to figure this out, you know. Do you remember what John tells us in 1 John 4? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You can resist Satan primarily because he is weaker than God. And so in your outline, Satan may not be intimidated by me, but he is intimidated by God. He is. Now, I don't, I really don't quite understand the, the, the spiritual dynamics of all of this. All I know is, is that somehow Satan's power was vastly weakened at the cross. We use the words, but do we really understand it? That somehow we're not fighting for victory anymore, but when we ally ourselves with God, somehow we're now fighting from a position of, of being from a position of victory. That when we call Satan's bluff, he runs. There's a story told about Napoleon Bonaparte. As he was, you know, about the, the early 1800s, uh, trying to, you know, kind of dominate all of Europe. You know, on one occasion he took some maps and he laid them out in front of some of his military advisors and he pointed at a red spot on the map. And he says, if it was not for that red spot, I could conquer all of Europe. And that red spot happened to be the British Isles. And I can just kind of imagine the devil with all of his lieutenant demons huddled there in hell. And with venom in his mouth saying, if it wasn't for that red spot, I could conquer all of God's creation. And he could have. In fact, he thought the world belonged to him anyway, didn't he? And of course, we know that red spot is the cross. In uncomplicated terms, it is this. It is the enabled ability through the power of forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us to face off with our resentments and our angers and our lust and our addiction to to pornography and our unforgiveness and our materialism and our sexual immorality and our drunkenness and just being stuck in this hopeless cycle of trying to find life in all the wrong places. Now, I know that all of this can sound like just a lot of empty religious talk. We are a nation of cynics in America today, especially as we face what seems to be the hopeless realities of our own failures to fix our own lives. But what really is in question here is this. Does grace have the power to actually change life? If it does not, then James is speaking nothing here except empty God talk. And we've got to figure out the answer to that question. Number two on your outlines, we must simply pursue God. Here James says... Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
I told this story back many, many years ago. Um, and so some of you might remember this one. I was in third grade. Uh, we lived in North Woburn, Massachusetts. And uh, it was, you know, as I reflect back on it, it was a rather rough neighborhood in that right across from our little small duplex that we lived in was a, was a, uh, a, a project housing. And um, I know that the police visited the area a lot because of what I guess was domestic violence that occurred quite a bit. And there was always a lot of fighting going on in our neighborhood. And, um, well, one day I was out with uh, some of my friends when one of the neighborhood bullies, um, who was five years older than I was, uh, singled me out. And it was kind of like a hazing event and, uh, you know, kind of establishing the pecking order in the neighborhood. And I remember sitting at a picnic table when he came up to us and he looked at me, and I don't know what prompted it, I he said, I want you to pick up some grass off the, uh, uh, off the lawn and eat it. Well, I, you know, I, was, I was sensible, so I refused. <laughs> At which time he pulled out a, a switchblade, a rather large one. And he held it very close to my face and he said, eat some grass. So what does an eight-year-older do in the face of a 13-year-older holding a knife? I ate some grass. And yes, it was a bit humiliating. And yes, I was very scared. After the episode, I hightailed it home, and I was too, too scared to venture out of my yard. I just waited for my dad to come home from work. And when my father drove in, I immediately told him what had happened. And I have not gotten the words out of my mouth before he grabbed my hand, and we were making our way up, which is only about eight houses up around a corner, up, up a small hill, to this bully's house. As I kind of, you know, quickly was putting one high-top sneaker in front of the other, just trying to keep up. When we got to where he lived, my father knocked on the door, and it just so happened that this bully answered the door. And my dad looked at me and said, is he the one? And admittedly, with some sense of anticipation, I said, At that point, I watched in somewhat of heroic amazement as my dad took him by the collar. He literally lifted him up off the ground, placed him up against the door frame, and um, began to proceed to lecture him on the ills of juvenile delinquency. Let's just say that after that, I could roam the neighborhood with absolute fearless freedom. <laughs> By the way, my dad was doing him a favor because a few weeks after that, he got arrested and put in a juvenile detention because of theft. So, if he had only listened. The moral of the story, when you stay close to your father, the bully doesn't bother you. But you know this, don't you? That coming near to God isn't just showing up for church. I mean, people are around God all the time in church buildings, 
and outside of it. And we still keep God at arm's length, don't we? Rather, it is opening up your life to God. It is trusting him to do something with what you see in the mirror that bothers you so much, the mess. It's trusting that he loves you more than you love yourself so that you can actually kind of get out of this cynicism and start hoping again. And it is on your outline. It is more than simply resolving to improve your life. Rather, it is to be at home with God. Do you understand that? It is entering into the fullness of the presence of God. It's it's like being comfortable with God. Are you comfortable with God? And you ask the question, well, why do I need to draw near to God? Why doesn't God, if he's so loving, just draw near to me? And the blunt answer is because you and I are the ones that left. But that's not James's answer. That's mine. What God really wants to know is if you really want to be with him. Or are you just flirting with him today? Remember what Jeremiah said? You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. God God just can't fill himself, fill us with himself if we're just not really hungry for him. Now, we don't have to come very far But we do have to come. And if we're willing, we're going to experience, and I say experience, not just hear about. We will personally experience a closeness and a care in ways that we just cannot perceive when we're keeping God at a distance. Thirdly on your outline, simply, we must take sin seriously. Now, there's something about this that causes me to hesitate. It's not the presence of the issue of sin, because I've been a Christian for a long time, and I knew this. What caused me to hesitate is the strong, emotional language that he uses to capture the struggle of our souls to draw near to God. I mean, doesn't it kind of arrest you a little bit? Grieve! Mourn! Wail! Anyone doing that this morning? Turn your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Well, in simple terms, what James is trying to get across to us here is this. Sin is no laughing matter. Right? Of course, if you look at our culture, we spend an enormous amount of time just through media doing just that, don't we? Isn't that what they want us to do? And I guess that's because as God grows closer to me, 
I sense more clearly what sin looks like to him, and so it bothers me more deeply than if I'm keeping God at a distance. Today in our culture, we hear, well, we don't hear much about that. Instead, what we hear is about how we come to Jesus as if it didn't involve some sort of painful turning away from someone or some things, right? I mean, God is so eager to have us back and uh, uh, to be back in our lives, but we have to decide whether or not we want to have the kind of relationship with God that really means something to us. And that's why James tells us on your outline, it's not just a matter of regretting sin, but of removing it. Wash your hands outwardly. Purify your hearts inwardly. I'm sure many of you remember the the amazing story of of Aaron Ralston. You may not know the name, but I think you might have heard the story. He was a, a very experienced mountain climber and uh, who had a rather impressive resume of accomplishments uh, around the world in this area. But tragedy, as you are in looking at uh, at this moment, uh, struck him in the spring of 2003 while he was climbing in a remote area at Canyonland National Park in Utah. And there he was uh, negotiating a kind of a 10-foot drop between uh, uh, two ledges when an an 800-pound boulder uh, shifted above him and it crushed his right forearm and pinned him against the canyon wall. And after five futile days of trying every technique that he knew in his arsenal, um, he finally came to the realization... Uh, going through, at this point, a severe dehydration, that he was going to die unless he did something much more radical. And so, and you will remember this if you know the story, and it's stunning. He took what was, in essence, just a pocket knife, and he surgically detached himself from his own lower arm. And then he put a tourniquet on it. He rappelled uh, uh, 65 more feet down a sheer wall. He had to hike out of the, the, the canyon uh, area uh, where he was finally rescued by a helicopter search team. He's become kind of a, a folk hero of mountain climbers. And there's, there's something here that kind of forces you to ask the question, what would motivate a person to be willing to do such a thing? By the way, a lot of people would probably just, well, give up the ghost, wouldn't they? Well, when asked, Aaron said this. He says, all the desires and joys and euphoria of a future life came rushing into me. Maybe that's how I handled the pain. I was just happy to be taking some action. Do you understand what he's saying? He's telling us that when he saw what life could be, and somehow the panic and, and the, uh, I said the euphoria kind of overshadowed all the cynicism of life. 
when he realized how much he wanted that life, when he saw the, the, the joy on the other end of it all, it gave him the hope to face the difficult things that he was looking at at that moment, as radical as it was. By the way, didn't Jesus say something like this? If your right hand causes you to fall, cut it off and throw it away. It is better. It really is better than to try to live life without God. Now, it's at this point in our text that James makes what seems to be an abrupt shift. Pick up with me in verse 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother and judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not speaking, uh, keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to, to judge your neighbor? Have you noticed, by the way, how often James, in this letter, and he's already used it several times, the word law? In fact, this is the the sixth and seventh time in this letter he's used it. And if you paid attention, going through James, he's defined it all the way back in chapter 1, what he's talking about. He's speaking here specifically about what we call the royal law. Out of Leviticus uh, 19, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one uh, one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's what James is constantly referring us to. You see, James is determined to get us to connect the dots here and to expand our view in this relationship with God and that is that our relationship with God is defined and expressed through our relationship with people, especially people in the family of God. So James is not making an abrupt shift here. Rather, he's telling us again on your outlines that if we want to be at home with God, somehow we've got to learn to be at home with each other. In his book, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, He has a unique way, as he always does, of bringing us to our attention. Listen to this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in nightmares. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in this light that these, of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with and work with and marry and snub and exploit. Immortal horrors Everlasting splendors. Do you understand what he's saying? 
He's trying to remind us here that if we just pause for a few minutes to consider the fact that we are all stamped by the image of God, we are all his creation, that we'll also realize that there's there's a great deal more going on in these relationships than first meets the eye. That if we saw each other that as God does, we would be so graceful to each other. But nonetheless, there were those in the church that James was addressing that were acting like they were qualified to do God's work because of how they were judging and slandering each other. And so James reminds them that when you're slandering and judging each other, you're not resisting the devil. You're doing his work for him. By the way, do you know what Satan means? It means slanderer. Well, that was for free. Now, we tend to so oversimplify things like this, so let me say this. We are all, don't we all have to make judgments in life? I mean, isn't James himself making a series of judgments throughout this entire letter? But what James is trying to get us to see here is the awesome and fearful nature of this task that at times God delegates to us. And how when we make judgments, we are actually acting in God's stead. And so we have got to be exceptionally careful and restrained. Not to be arrogant and flippant and harsh, because ultimately only God can make a fair judgment. Because after all, only God knows the whole story, right? And that's why as an antidote, if you pay attention to the broadness of this whole chapter, James advocates grace and forgiveness. Because it's either that or it's religious cannibalism as we devour each other. And by the way, the world out there is waiting for us to stop. But as we all know, forgiveness is complicated business, isn't it? Because some of us find it difficult to forgive others, while others of us can't, it seems, forgive ourselves. And so I'd like to, as we come to an end, just take a quick look at those two things. In regards to forgiving others, William Blake said this, that the glory of Christianity is to conquer by forgiveness. I'll say it again. The glory of Christianity is to conquer by forgiveness. Let me just say it this way. There is within each of us a bent toward revenge. And even a desire for justice that oftentimes finds itself at odds with the gospel. Our only hope, we must somehow learn to give ourselves over to make ourselves available to God's forgiveness. Too often I think we get hung up like Peter 
In John 13, remember when Jesus was washing their feet and he came to Peter and Peter says, No, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus, knowing that this moment was really pointing ahead to what he was going to do for Peter on the cross, says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. In other words, without this life-consuming experience of God's love, we are all severely handicapped in our ability to love and forgive. And we'll just not get it. In regards to forgiving ourselves, back some years ago, I had a, uh, a person come to see me who was engaged in what is termed SIV, uh, translated self-inflicted violence syndrome. That is, he would take a razor or a knife and cut himself. This was not a suicide attempt, nor was it a call for attention, because those who are engaged in this kind of addictive behavior um, usually uh, go to great lengths to hide their, their handiwork. In fact, it was summertime, and it was uh, uh, near 100 degrees, and he was wearing long sleeve shirts. You understand where I'm getting at there? The cause? By the way, we should pay attention to these things because this is addictions which are all defined fundamentally the same are, they're all over the place in this generation. And we have to learn how to navigate it. The cause, well, he was having to face some things in his life that were causing him deep, profound, personal shame. And when, it became, when the shame just would become so intense, he would then engage in cutting himself. By the way, it could be alcohol, it could be sexual relationships, it could just be becoming a workaholic. It has a lot of faces to it. And in this way, you see, it would create a buffer, an alternative that crowded out the emotional pain. In this case, creating one pain to mask another. Just talk to a counselor, and they will be able to more thoroughly explain that to you if it's not already in your own family and in your own life. And it struck me as sadly ironic that this young man happened to be the son of a preacher. And you would think that having been in an, in an intense Christian environment growing up, that he would somehow have the kind of the spiritual empowerment to deal with the deep shame and guilt in a healthier way. It's not that he could not, he did not think God forgave other people. He just found it difficult to perceive that God would forgive him personally. And by the way, isn't that the way it is for many of us? Well, a long story short, he graduated from Auburn, and, and you know, like happens, I lost track of him. 
but I'm glad God didn't lose track of him. Out of the blue, about five years after he left, he emailed me. And what he expressed was this, that after being in this self-inflicted prison, his words, he finally got so desperate that he actually let God into his life. He had been in church buildings all of his life. And how that now that he had truly experienced the forgiveness of God, his life was now joyful and it was solid. And somehow God had just put his life back together again. And it was wonderful. And so I ask you again, does grace have the power to change lives? Does grace have the power to change your life? Back to some ending words in the lyrics of Call My Name. Go ahead, Nisha. The pain inside has erased your hope for love. Soon you will find that I will give you all that your heart could ever want and so much more. Just call my name. Do it now. I want you to never doubt that my love for you is so alive. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. If in some way uh, you'd like to do that in front of this uh, family here, uh, I, we all invite you to do one of two things. Feel free to come forward and we'll talk. Or as our elders make their way to the back during the closing song, they're back there in the foyer and they They wait on you. And I think you'll find a loving embrace if you just want to talk with them privately about some things. Call his name. Do it now while we stand and while we sing.